You were listening to Making It in the Toy Industry, episode number 104. Welcome to Making It in the Toy Industry, a podcast for inventors and entrepreneurs like you. And now your host, Ajel Wade. Toy people, you are in for a real treat today. Get ready to listen and learn with Dan Harris, a founding member of Harris Bricken Law, an international law firm where Dan mostly represents companies doing business in emerging market countries. Most of his time is spent helping American and European companies navigate Asia by working with the international layers at his firm and setting up companies overseas drafting international contracts, protecting IP, and overseeing M&A transactions. In addition, Dan writes and speaks extensively on international law with a focus on protecting foreign businesses in their overseas operations. He is also a prolific and widely followed blogger, writing as the co-author of the award-winning China Law Blog. Today on the podcast, we are going to dive deep into conversations about U.S. trademark law, the differences in the court system between China and the U.S. We're going to talk a little bit about patents, NDAs, NNNs. It's a full and exciting conversation today, toy people. Let's dive in. Hey there, toy people. Ajel Wade here, and welcome back to another episode of the Toy Coach Podcast, Making It in the Toy Industry. This is a weekly podcast brought to you by thetoycoach.com. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. I cannot wait to dive into all of this IP talk with you. Thank you for having me. I know you have a lot of experience in law, but I want you to talk about your experience working with toy companies. Can you share a little bit about what you've done? Sure. Basically, what I have done and what my law firm has done with toy companies is what we've done with a lot of different consumer products companies. We work with them on the manufacturing and IP protection side, helping them with their contracts, with their suppliers in China, in other places in Asia as well, even Mexico lately, and helping them protect their intellectual property in China and elsewhere around the world. Okay. So there you mentioned manufacturing contracts, and that's not actually a topic I've touched much on yet in the podcast. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what's the importance of even having one of those for one of your clients? Okay, sure. There are a lot of important reasons for having those, particularly with China, because Americans tend to view the world as the United States, and they tend to think that the entire world's just like us. But the reality is our legal system is very, very different from China's legal system. Now, you've probably heard people say China doesn't have any laws. It's the Wild West. They'll steal everything on and on and on. Some of that is true. Most of the time when people have trouble with their suppliers in China, and I know this is not going to make me popular here today, but it's usually their own fault. Because they essentially assume that doing business with China, buying toys from China is the same as buying toys from Peoria, Illinois. It's not. It's very, very different. And the difference mostly stems from the different legal systems. The biggest difference is that in the United States, if I were to say, I'd like to buy those toys that are on your shelf behind you for $500. 
And if you said yes, and I gave you $500 and those toys were in bad condition, I might have a good argument for a refund of my $500 because a court would look at that and say, well, everybody assumed that the toys were working. And if they're not work, you get your money back. Mm -hmm. In China, it does not work that way. Basically, if it's not in the contract, it doesn't exist. Mm. And an example I always give, it's not a toy, not quite a toy example, but it's such a good example I can't resist, is a company came to us. They had ordered about a million dollars of North Carolina blue t-shirts. And they had gotten a sample from the Chinese company and the sample was North Carolina blue. But when they got the t-shirts, they were blue. They were not North Carolina blue. So instead of being able to sell them for $20 or $25, they unloaded them for 4 or $5. Ooh. And they came to us wanting us to pursue the Chinese company for the difference. And we basically told them, we don't like your lawsuit because you don't have a contract that specifically said mm. Pantene color XYZ. Therefore, you're probably out of luck. And in the United States, we would have taken that lawsuit and we would have won it because the court would have said, yeah, everybody knew it was supposed to be North Carolina blue. They even got the sample, but it wasn't in the contract. And I can go on and on with these examples. Mm -hmm. I won't, but I'll give you one more. Company comes to us. This was a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago. They had bought three or $4 million worth of laptop bags. And the laptop bags were not strong enough to hold a computer. So they said, would you talk to the factory for us? So we called the factory and said, look, what's going on here? These laptop bags are not strong enough to hold a computer. And without missing a beat, the factory said, right. If they had wanted laptop bags strong enough to hold a computer, they should have bought our $4 bags, not our $2 bags. And they were right. That's the problem with China. The, the, the range of quality can range from a t-shirt that wears out after two washes mm-hmm. where you pay 50 cents to a high quality t-shirt where you're paying $25. And it's the same with toys. If you're not specific in a contract, you're completely relying on your factory, and you have no real recourse. At what volume should a company really consider building out this contract? Because it's not, it's more than just having a contract. You have to be prepared to actually fight with that contract in hand. No, no. That's okay. Not quite correct. And, okay. And I'm going to jump over and talk about patents for a second. I think patents are tend to be overrated because people spend a lot of money on patents. Mm-hmm. And if you're not willing to spend the money to monitor and to sue, which is fabulously expensive, Mm -hmm. then you probably shouldn't get the patent in the first place. Mm -hmm. A lot of people spend money on patents and then regret it. Mm -hmm. That's not true with contracts with Chinese manufacturers, and here's why. And the question you asked, by the way, is the perfect question because it's the question I always get. And I always get it from Americans. (laughs) But that's because Americans were so used to being able to go to court and the courts being reliable. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not as reliable in China, even though the World Bank 
ranks China number six in terms of enforcing contracts. Okay. And I mentioned that not because I believe China is the sixth best country in the world for enforcing contracts, but it's not nearly as bad as people think it is. Okay. They think it's bad because they didn't have the right contracts. Mm. But here's why enforcement is not as important as people think. There are really three reasons for having a contract. One is clarity. Are you and your Chinese supplier on the same page? I'm convinced that roughly 90% of problems between American and Chinese suppliers stem from confusion more than animosity. Even though Americans will always say, oh, they're trying to cheat me. Once we get involved, we look at the contract and we say, look, you know, I understand where they're coming from. We just have mm -hmm. to try to resolve this. Mm -hmm. So it's good to have clarity. And the example I always give there is delivery dates. If you say to your toy manufacturer, can you get me my toys in 30 days? 99% of the time, they will say, no problem. Mm-hmm. That's a Chinese cultural thing. You don't mm -hmm. want to say no to people. You say no problem. Then when it comes time to write the contract, we'll put in there delivery within 30 days. Every day that delivery is late, there'll be a 1% damage that is owed to our client. Mm -hmm. And probably 90% of the time, the Chinese factory comes back and says, we can't sign this. We right. can't get it to you in 30 days. And our client will say, well, you told us you could. And the Chinese company will say, well, we can, but just not all the time. It <laughs> really is a different way of thinking about it. So then what we do is we figure out what will they commit to. Let's say it's 45 days. We put 45 days. Now, all of a sudden, you've got the clarity. And it's interesting because people have said, well, are your clients irritated that it's now 45 days and not 30 days? I go, no. Usually they're happy because the key isn't that it be 30 or 45 days. The key is that they be able to tell Target or Walmart or yeah. whomever that I will get it to you in 60 days. Right. You don't want to be wrong. So right. there's the clarity aspect. The other important thing that Americans neglect because we're spoiled with our court system is prevention. The goal is not to sue and win a lawsuit against your Chinese supplier. Mm -hmm. Because there, just like here, if you have to sue, you've already lost. And, you know, clients come to us and they say, I want to sue this company for $150,000. We say, do you really? I mean, it's usually just not worth it. So the real key to these contracts is prevention. So let's take that 30-day delivery option issue. In the contract we put in, you owe us 1% for every day you're late. Mm -hmm. That is very, very effective in the Chinese court system. Okay. And the Chinese companies know that. And they're making toys for 55 different companies. And five of them have a contract that's very clear that there will be problems if they're late with their deliveries. So when they fall behind on their deliveries, they're going to make sure to give precedence to the five companies that have the contract and you will get your toys on time mm. and the others will not. 
Right. I call it the bike lock theory of Chinese law. It's not that the contract is perfect. It's not that the system is perfect. Mm. It's just that your contract is better than everybody else's, which is all your bike lock does for you as well. So one is clarity. One is the second is prevention. Third? The third was your question, enforcement. Enforcement. And, and that is, can I sue and win? Mm. And it's important that you be able to sue and win because if your Chinese supplier thinks you have no case, mm. they're not afraid of you. So one of the provisions we put in almost all of our contracts is what in the United States is called liquidated damages. And I hinted at that with this delivery issue, but we do it with quality also. So we will say if there's a 1% defect rate, we eat it. If there's, and it really varies with the product, Mm -hmm. uh, even within the toy industry, but let's say 1% defect rate, we'll eat it. 5%, you need to replace the product more than 5%, we get a refund. And that can be very effective because again, it's very clear and Chinese courts understand that. And then we'll put in there, and if you sell our product, and this is where the IP aspect comes in, if you sell our product to anyone other than us, you owe us $100,000. And that is a very important provision it's incredibly powerful in Chinese courts. And American lawyers don't tend to know about this Mm -hmm. because in the United States, you don't really, those provisions can be complicated. Courts Mm -hmm. really look closely at them. But in China, if we have a provision saying, if you steal our IP, you owe us $100,000. And that $100,000 is in the ballpark of what damages might be. You can go to a Chinese court and you can, freeze up to $100,000 in assets, usually a bank account of the Chinese company. And you can do that within a week or two. And Chinese companies know this. So if you have that provision in your contract with them, they will not mess around with you unless they're really, really desperate. So I have two questions to follow up with this. My first question is, does this contract have to be in English and in Chinese, like the other NNNs do? Generally, yes. Mm-hmm. And I'll go back to the three reasons for having a contract. <laughs> One is clarity. Okay. If you want it to be clear, <laughs> clear, you put it in their language. Yeah. Two, prevention. Again, they're going to look at it yeah. and you want them to look at it and say, whoa, this is not the toy company we want to make a, a late delivery to. Okay. And then three, enforcement, you want to be able to flip around and sue them quickly in a Chinese court. And I'll explain right. why in a minute it should be a Chinese court. And having a Chinese language contract helps. Because okay. you, you take your English language contract to a Chinese court and some Chinese courts are so paralyzed by them that they will literally never hear your case. Wow. Because they just don't want to deal with it. Other times they'll bring in a translator who's going to translate your contract. And I always say to our clients, you don't want to know what your contract says after you've sued somebody. You want to know it before you've sued somebody. But back to your original question, which we get a lot and is a great question, and that is how much should somebody be buying such that they need a contract? Yeah. I'm going to surprise you by saying that companies like 
Mattel are in less need of a good contract than a mid-sized toy company. Interesting. And the reason I say that is because a company like Mattel might be buying $50 million worth of toy of one toy from a manufacturer and they've been doing it for five years. Right. So let's say Mattel gets a bad shipment. Is that supplier going to say, Hey, sorry, that's life. No, (laughs) they're going to say we will fix it. Why? Because it's Mattel. Yeah. And it's a $50 million client. Now. So on the high end side, the high dollar side, the value even can start to decrease for certain things, not necessarily for intellectual property, but for quality. Usually that's not that big an issue for the big toy companies. But at the same time, if you're going to be buying $10,000 worth of toys at a time, it's not worth, it, it probably is not worth having a manufacturing contract because the cost of the manufacturing contract is is getting near what the cost of your loss would be if you get one bad shipment. Mm, But having said that, sometimes it's interesting because we have some clients who say, okay, I get that. I'm only buying $25,000 at a time, but I'm going to be doing it every two weeks. And if I get a bad shipment, it costs me more than $25,000 because then I have to explain to Target what happened or whatever. And so, yes, I I do want a contract, not so much to get my $25,000 back, but to prevent problems. How long would it take to just build a a manufacturing contract with your firm, for example? I think we're telling people 10 to 14 days. Okay. And typically the way it works is we talk with the client, we figure out with them what they need, what sorts of provisions, and then we draft the contract in English, they review it, we revise it, we finalize it, then we draft it in Chinese, and then we have them send that dual language contract to their Chinese supplier rather than us doing it because that's just the way it's done culturally in China. And typically, I mean, there are various important elements to a manufacturing contract. And Mm -hmm. we tell our clients, look, do not pay us our flat fee to draft this contract until both of us believe that the Chinese company is going to sign it. So sometimes we'll get people who come to us and say, yeah, we've, you know, we've reached agreement on everything except, you know, they want to charge us $5 per widget and we want to pay three, but we want you to draft the contract because we think once they see it, they'll change their minds. We're like, no, (laughs) we've got to get them to agree on the price. I mean, lawyers can't change that. So what are the five main points to make sure you're covering and protecting yourself from in a manufacturing contract? Okay. The five main points are intellectual property. You don't want them making your widgets, making your toys with your molds, with your tooling, Mm -hmm. and going out and selling it on Alibaba for half or a third what you're selling it for. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Two, molds and tooling. What you don't want is a situation where they start giving you bad quality or late deliveries and you say to them, I'm done with you. I'm moving to a new manufacturer. And they go, 
that's great, but we're not giving you your $300,000 worth of molds and tooling back. And you then have to go out and have them made again. And for three or four months, you have no way to have your product made. Right. That's a bad thing. So that's mold and tooling. Also, quality is important. You want a spec sheet that lists out what you expect. No lead. That's big in the toy industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, stainless steel. What define it? You know what? What percent does it have to be? You have to be incredibly specific. So back to the laptop bag example. If you're going to be buying laptop bags, you need to say this laptop bag has to have tensile strength of this. It has to be capable of holding 50 pounds without the handles breaking. Mm-hmm. There's you cannot get too specific in these Chinese contracts because remember, if it's not in the contract. It doesn't really exist. Then you want delivery dates. And that's basically, I think I listed five. Yeah, or maybe more. From what you're, some of what you're describing to put into the manufacturing contract, this is actually making me want to ask you about NNNs, which is how I found you. I was doing some NNN research and I found China blog. And then I researched, I was like, who wrote this? This is very good article. And then I found you. But I'm just curious if somebody is is very small, like I'm, I'm thinking of people that are ordering maybe 500 pieces, maybe a thousand pieces because they're just starting and they do have some sort of intellectual property that they want to protect. Can they get an NNN agreement to protect them in some ways and, and maybe not extend to a manufacturing agreement as when their company grows? Yes, 100%. And we're asked that a lot. And it's interesting because... I actually love working with startup companies and smaller companies because I find it more challenging. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend who won't, his, his law firm, they won't even take those clients because he <laughs> doesn't like having to explain things. And, you know, he wants to give the big companies, you know, all six or seven documents and IP protections that anyone could ever need. Yeah. But I find it challenging to help someone figure out what's most important to them. When we take on a new client who's manufacturing in China, there are a lot of things we can do for them. And there are things we can do for them early on and later on. And one of the first things we offer up is doing a due diligence report on their manufacturer. And a lot of time that's very cheap. We charge $1,500 for that. And we come back with a five or eight page report on the manufacturer. We got really good at, at doing these quickly because of PPE, personal protective equipment. We would have people say, I need a report on these five companies in eight hours. And we'd line up people and we'd do all the reports. But what the reports tell you is they tell you whether you're dealing with a legitimate company or a scammer. Mm. And probably 30, it depends on the industry, but I would guess in the toy industry, probably 30 to 40% of the time, Mm -hmm. that report alone tells our client, do not use this manufacturer. Oh, wow. One thing that's really rife in the toy industry is fake manufacturers, Mm -hmm. brokers. Mm -hmm. A typical broker has a $300 a month office somewhere 
and an old computer worth about 150. Mm. Some of these people, I mean, we, we had a company come to us this, and it was a toy company, probably about only about six months ago. And they had sent a million dollars roughly to have toy soldiers made in China. And six months later, they had nothing and the factory had gone silent. And they said, what can we do here? And the first thing we do in that circumstance is figure out who we're dealing with. Because if it's a legitimate Chinese company, then the likelihood of our getting money back is a lot greater than if it's not. Mm -hmm. And we did research on the company and the company was a one person broker office. Wow. And it's like, that's, that's not a good situation. You also get with brokers, you get the situation which we had probably 15 years ago, but it's still the best example, mm-hmm. is where a company that makes Christmas tree lights called us up and said, you know, it's already August. We don't have our lights. We're going to have big problems here. Would you help us with the factory? And we called up the factory and said, hey, what's going on here? We're calling on behalf of XYZ Company. And they go, who are they? What? They didn't know who our client was. Our client thought they were dealing directly with the factory. They were dealing with a broker. We figured that out. And the factory said, we're not going to give them anything because their broker owes us millions of dollars. (gasps) What? Yes. So what, and this is not the best solution. Well, it was the best solution, but it's not a solution that's going to make people happy. Mm -hmm. What we ended up doing is we ended up negotiating with the factory to get the products right away. And to do that, our client had to pay about a million five more. Wow. Otherwise they would have gotten nothing. And so we basically cut out the broker. So yeah, it can be a problem. And doing so, if you're not going to have a contract, it becomes even more important to know who you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So that's one item we do. Another item is an NNN agreement. And Mm that tends to be preliminary. It's before you show this factory your toy design, you want to have some protections in place. And And an NNN agreement does that for you. And what I always tell companies, and this is very true in the toy industry, is it's very difficult to stop everybody in the world from duplicating your product. Right. And our consumer goods clients, it happens to them all the time. And it probably costs them five, roughly, you know, five or 10% in sales. That's bad, but that's sort of the cost of doing business. What's even worse is, when your own manufacturer is competing with you because they've got all the tooling and everything. And then what they'll often do is if you don't have a good contract, and this has become way more common in just the last year or so, you go to a Chinese manufacturer to have your toy made. And and let's say you go to four of them and three of them are going to charge you 10 to $12. And a fourth one's going to charge you $7. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow, this is great. I'm going to go with the fourth one. You, you go with the fourth one and you send them everything and all your designs and all that. And then you don't hear back from them. Mm-hmm. 
They've quoted you the $7 because they want your designs. They'll make more money making your product than making your product for themselves than making it for you. And if you haven't protected yourself, you can't stop them. So we get these companies that come to us and say, you know, what do I do here? If they've got my money for the tooling, for the, the molds, and they're making my product, what do I do? And we're like, there's nothing you can do other than try and find a new manufacturer as fast as you possibly can, because you just lost your product. That happens. And what also happens is where uh, price is really a tough issue because our clients always say, well, I want to lock them in. It's $7 per toy. And it's like, well, that's very difficult to do because their prices change. But what also happens though is sometimes a company will be charging you $7 and then all of a sudden they'll come back and say, we're going to charge you $14. And then companies come to us and say, can they do that? And we go, yes, but let's see your contract and they don't have one or it's a terrible contract. And we go, wow, you've got a lot more to worry about than that $7 increase in price. They're increasing the price, not because they want to make your toys, but because they want to drive you away because they're going to start making your toys for themselves. So that's really important to prevent. And there are two ways to do that. One is preventing your manufacturer from making your toy. And the other is registering your trademark. Because what I always say, if some other company's making your toy, that may cost you five or 10% in sales. But if some other company is making your toy and they can advertise it legally on Alibaba under your brand name, that's what causes companies to go under. Because how can you compete with somebody who's selling your product at a third of the price? Yeah, yeah, you can't. In order to prevent anyone from making your toy with your brand name on it in China, you need a Chinese trademark. And what happens to people who don't get Chinese trademarks is usually business crushing. Because take the company that wants to make your toy for themselves, Mm -hmm. and therefore they quoted you a ridiculously low price. Right. That company starts making your toys. What it will also do is register your brand name in China. And by doing that, you now cannot have your toys made in China because if you do so, you'll be violating their trademark. And this happens all the time. There were these four companies in Europe that completely dominated an industry between the four of them. And between these four companies, they had, let's say, 95% of the industry. A company in China that used to make this product for, I think, at least two of these four companies had the brilliant idea of registering the trademarks of all four companies in China. And they did that. And then they said to those four companies, we're not going to make this product for you anymore. And within about three months, that Chinese company had 50% of the industry. What? In the world. So you want to protect your trademark if you've invested significant money in building up the value of that trademark. It's the brand that they're buying, essentially. Right. And the thing is, usually when people come to us to have their toys manufactured in China, they've already spent $1,500 
getting a trademark on it in the United States. It may be on Kickstarter. It it may be that they have other toys and this is their first one that's going to be made in China. So they've built up a brand name. So the brand name for many of these companies is the most valuable thing they have. Now, what we're seeing is a lot of them are getting kicked out of China essentially because they can't manufacture there anymore. Well, here's an example of why. Many years ago, a coat company came to us wanting to sue someone who had seized about $5 million worth of their coats at the Chinese border so that they wouldn't leave China. They said, they've seized our coats. We want you to sue them. And we're like, okay, but why did they seize the coats? They go, I don't know. So we talked with Chinese customs and they seized the coats. And I'm going to make up the name of the company. Let's call it Smith Brothers. Okay. Uh, That's a milk delivery service here. So that's why it popped into my head. Uh, Okay. So Smith Brothers Coats, a competitor company went off and registered Smith Brothers as their own trademark for coats. In China. In China. And then by doing that, they were able to seize the U.S. company's Smith Brothers Coats because those coats clearly violated the Chinese company Smith Brothers trademark. Wow. And so what we have to tell those people who call us and, I mean, talk about giving them bad news, we say, look, you don't want to sue this company. You want us to negotiate a deal with them to get your coats released. But is it even about the getting the coats released or is it about regaining their trademark? I mean, yeah, those coats, but then they can't produce any other coats under that name, right? In China. Yeah. And then we tell them, you need to go to Vietnam now. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know, blocked in China. You're reminding me, I did see, so there was this toy that got fed to me on a Facebook ad and it was called the stair slide. And I thought it was cool. And I I got curious about the safety of it, right? So I I started researching it to learn about like, how they pass safety testing with this thing? In my research, I went on their site and I'd found that apparently they were dealing with a lot of knockoffs and they were like invalid, like they weren't functioning. They were poorly done and people were getting ripped off. And so they had this like whole passage at the bottom of their their website saying, we, you know, stair slide is a Kickstarter. We don't sell from anywhere, but this location, if any other company tells you that they're making stair slide, that's not us. They just have all these knockoffs everywhere coming from China, apparently, and not selling the same product, not even the same quality product. Right. That's common. I don't know what happened to stair slide, but that, that sort of thing causes businesses to go under. Yeah. Because people are not going to go to your website and read that. Yes. And people are just going to say, wow, I just read in the paper some kid was badly injured from a stair slide. Uh-huh. And you beg that newspaper to, to explain that it's not your stair slide. Are you able, like, will something get stopped in the U.S. border if, like, if it's coming from China to the U.S. and then you have the trademark in the U.S., will it get stopped here? Yes, it might. (laughs) It might? Why? Why? Because here's the issue. Take Nike, for example. Okay. I'm going to exaggerate slightly here. Okay. Nike probably has five people sitting in every major customs office in the United States. Okay. And Nike has given lessons to every customs office in the United States on how to spot fake Nikes. And so my guess is U.S. Customs seizes a lot of fake Nikes. But 
If you're selling a toy and there's somebody in China that is selling that same toy with your, I put in quotes, your, because it's not yours if you don't register your brand name, but it's not yours if you haven't registered in China. Right. If they're selling that same toy with your brand name on Alibaba and mm-hmm. selling it one at a time, you customs might catch one out of 500, but that's not going to help you. Right. And what you talk about with that stair slide, it's very common. We represent a very a good sized toy company mm-hmm. and they had a problem with one of their toys, which was stuffed, not in the United States, but in England, they were being shipped to England and they were stuffed with rags and things that smelled of gasoline. <gasps> and people were... returning the toys to our client and to the stores. And it was a very bad situation. However, it was a good situation in that we were able to get Alibaba to take down everything. We were able to talk with British customs and get them to be on the alert for it, et cetera, because they had done all of the preparatory work. So now to bring it all back full circle, generally, it's always going to be more important to protect your IP than to protect a $10,000 shipment. Mm. And the way you protect your IP is with an NNN agreement that protects the design and with a trademark, which protects your brand name. And usually if you have to choose between the two of them, Mm -hmm. the trademark's the most valuable because once someone can sell your product with your name, good yeah. luck. Now, I just have a few more questions. I want to go back to NDAs. Okay, NDAs. Toy companies often use them or some form of an NDA to have inventors sign before they submit their idea concepts for review. So my listeners have a problem with NDAs that are only protecting the receiver and not the submitter. Can you explain why that happens, why that is? Okay. Yes. And right now we're talking, I'm going to presume that we're talking about NDAs between, let's say, an American toy company and an American inventor. Uh, Let's say American toy company, but they could not be an American inventor. That's a good point. Yeah. That's true. Okay. So American toy company and an American or foreign inventor. Legally, it doesn't matter whether they're an American or foreign inventor. The law in the U.S. will be the same. I'm going to use Nike. I know they're not a toy company, but I'm going to use them as an example because they're kind of famous for this. They're also in the Northwest where I am. If I go to Nike and say, I've got these great shoes, Nike's going to make me sign an NDA and they won't sign one. Yeah. Why won't Nike sign an NDA? Because Nike already has 10,000 shoe designs Mm -hmm. and they don't want me to sue them because I claim that I had my shoe design before they did or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why big companies tend to be very reluctant to sign what's called a mutual NDA. Yeah. It's not ridiculous. It's not unfair, but it can be very scary because if that big company does take your toy design and you have to sue them, it really is David versus Goliath. Right. But it can be done. I mean, we sued a big kitchen appliance company on behalf of an artist. Wow. They basically wanted her to paint their appliances. And she's a very good artist. And they didn't like what she was going to charge. So they then went off and hired 
a not so good artist to do basically the same thing. Like to copy her style. They would claim that it wasn't copying. <laughs> Just because you're big doesn't mean you can get away with everything. When you start talking about NDAs, I thought you were going to ask a different question, which is, I thought you were going to tell me, which is also very common, that a lot of American toy companies give an NDA, an American NDA to their Chinese manufacturer thinking oh. that it's going to help them. Oh, interesting. Okay, no, go ahead. It's not going to help you. It's not. And fact, it's worse. Most of the time, it's worse than having nothing at all. What are key differences from an an American NDA and an NNN? The biggest difference is an American NDA is going to say that if I have a problem, if you steal my IP, I I sue you in Boston or in New York or in Tumwa, Iowa. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is, in fact, that's I believe it's today's blog post on the China Law Blog is on why it often makes no sense to sue Chinese companies in the United States. And cutting right to the point, the reason is because, well, I'll give the most recent example. A lawyer from Boston called us wanting to sue under a contract. No, they had sued in Boston and won. And then they wanted us to take that Boston judgment to China and collect on it. And we're like, we can't do that. China does not enforce Mm. U.S. judgments. And then she said, well, can I sue them again? And I'm like, no, you can't sue them again because China does enforce contracts. And the contract said you have to sue them in Boston. And you did that and you won. Mm. You made the choice. So, and Chinese companies know this. They know that a contract that says the lawsuit will be in the United States is worthless for 99% of Chinese companies because they have no assets in the United States. So you, you've basically, by giving them that NDA, you've given them completely free reign. You don't even have the advantage of Chinese law outside the contract. You might be able to sue them for trade secret violation under Chinese law. But you don't even have that anymore. Interesting. Oh, wow. That's a good, that was not what I was going to ask, but very clear. Don't do NDA. So back to NDAs, do you believe inventors should request NDAs from anyone else before disclosing their ideas? So let's say any consultant that they work with, any artist they hire, any, you know, small, like not, if they're not showing it to a large toy company, but they're showing it to people to help them develop the idea. Generally, Yes. One thing I will add, though, is the best protection of all is silence. So you talked about that stair slide, and they were on Kickstarter. Yeah. Put your product and your brand name on Kickstarter, and there's a good chance your brand name and your product will be sold from China before you've even raised enough money to have it made yourself. So a lot of times, it's you should keep as much quiet as possible until you have protections in place. And a lot of times when it's early in the game, you don't, it doesn't really make sense to have too many protections in place because your product might change. Right. So what we always say is, and I'm going to give a China example, and this is another reason why it's good to do due diligence on the Chinese company, because good Chinese companies are much less likely to steal your IP than bad ones. But if you go to 10 bad Chinese companies with your design and you have all 10 of them sign a really good NNN agreement, yeah. I cannot tell you that it, your design won't get stolen because right. you 
went to 10 bad companies and bad companies are more likely to violate a contract. Mm. If you go to three good companies and make them sign an NNN, you're better off. So the more people you tell, the greater the risk is. But if you're going to tell people, you should have an NDA in place. Yeah. And they're not that hard in the United States. Yeah. And people are used to them. Yeah. How do you define, like, the, the big thing here is the public disclosure versus, like, a private disclosure. There might be some people who, you know, maybe they have their own agreement that you have to sign and you're comfortable with it and, and you know them, whatever. But how do you define that difference between public and private disclosure of your ideas with, like, a consultant and then public being is posting on Facebook public, is posting in a private Facebook group public, is posting on Kickstarter public. Like, how do you define public disclosure? I don't. Okay. (laughs) Because what I do is the examples you gave me, if I'm going to give my design, let's say I'm using a sourcing agent, a really good one. And there are plenty of those. There are plenty of really bad ones too. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's say I'm using a a good sourcing agent who I've worked with before. Mm -hmm. What do I put in the contract? I don't say you can't disclose it publicly. What I would say is you can not disclose this to anyone without my prior written permission. Mm -hmm. Or I might say you can disclose it to these, you know, up to five Chinese manufacturers that you know have the capability of making my toy. You, you want to limit it with specifics. Now, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, I talked about how in China, if it's not in the contract, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, in the United States, that's not true. So even a <laughs> mediocre NDA agreement could very well provide you with good protection. Oh, okay. But it's, you're always better off being specifics because if you're going into court and you're suing your consultant, and actually we had a large fast food company that consulted with us and they did sue their consultant who they put in charge of making furniture of all things uh-huh. in China for really botching. And that furniture got out and everybody has it. But what you can do is, I mean, if you're going to go to court and the contract says you can only tell these four people mm-hmm. and the consultant clearly told five other people, mm-hmm. that's a really easy, good lawsuit. If you've got a contract that says you cannot reveal it publicly, and they revealed it in a private Facebook group, mm-hmm. then we will tell our clients, okay, first thing we have to do is figure out whether a private Facebook group is public or not. Mm-hmm. And you know, that'll cost five or ten thousand dollars in legal oh, wow. research. And when we come back to you, we're not going to have a clear-cut answer. Meaning the first client can say, he told these three people, and they're not on the list of four. And we go, yes, that's a winner. The second one, we go, well, we could bring this lawsuit, but it's not clear whether we're going to win or not. A lot of things that people think are simple are far more complicated than they realize. Even something like U.S. trademarks, people go off and register a trademark and think that because they've got it, that they're fine, but they they aren't necessarily. And in fact, U.S. trademarks are in many respects more complicated than Chinese trademarks, because in China, if 
I have a toy and I call and my brand name is Smith Brothers. And I register Smith Brothers in the toy category of China's trademark. There's a 99.99% chance everything's fine. If I do that in the United States, somebody could still flip around and sue me for violating their trademark. And so an example I always give is we had a company come to us and they made water bottles. Mm-hmm. And their brand name was very, very similar to a huge international water company. We told them, look, we don't think you should use this brand name on your water bottle. And he said, well, I I think that's both. My product's completely different than theirs. And we're like, well, you might have an argument. We don't think you do. But if you get sued, they're going to crush you. And he goes, they're never going to sue me. And he wrote them a letter saying, you know, can I use this on my water bottle? And they didn't even bother responding to him. And then when he started advertising his water bottle, they told him they were going to sue him unless he stopped. And he said, what should I do? And I said, well, you need to hire somebody in your state. He was in a Midwest state to defend that lawsuit. And I said, that's going to cost you $200,000. Easy. And he goes, I don't have that kind of money. And I felt like saying, right. (laughs) <laughs> chosen that brand name. And he wow. spent all this money building up the brand name. So the it can be very comp things. The law is can seem simple, but it's complicated the more you know about it. Wow. And that's particularly true with intellectual property. Oh, thanks for all the great stories today, Dan. Those are all good lessons for us to learn from. I hope so. <laughs> Before you go, is there anything you want to share? Where can people reach out to you and work with you if they want to learn more about you and your company? Go to our website, harrisbricken.com and check out China Law Blog because um, if you're buying from China, there's a lot of good information there. And a lot of that information is true for a lot of other countries as well. Not necessarily 100% true, Although a lot of countries like Vietnam have very similar legal systems to China. But even if you're having your products made in Mexico, the big picture issues are always going to be the same, which is you want to get good quality product and you want to protect your IP. Right. Thanks so much for being here today. This was a really informative episode. I know people are going to love it. So I appreciate you coming on the show today, Dan. I really do. And I appreciate your having me. Take care. Thank you. Well, toy people, there you have it. My conversation with Dan Harris from Harris Brickin Law. I hope you learned a lot from today's episode. It was a really insightful, in-depth, valuable conversation where we got examples and lessons to help us work with our Chinese factories better, more effectively protect our IP and understand what we should be having in manufacturing contracts. In today's episode, we covered manufacturing contracts, why you want to have one, what it should include, and at what purchase amount they'll actually be the most valuable to you. We also covered NNNs, which are non-disclosure, non-use, and non-circumvention agreements that you can utilize with your Chinese factory to protect the design of your product. And we covered trademarks, which can protect your product from being counterfeited, as we discussed in last week's episode. So if you didn't hear last week's episode, head over to episode 103, because it pairs perfectly with today's episode. And finally, we talked about NDAs. I snuck in a few questions for all of you 
toy inventors out there to answer how you should feel when signing an NDA that is really a one-way NDA between you and a toy company. I know we've talked about this. I've talked about this in lives and I've talked about this here on the podcast, but I understand hearing that kind of advice come directly from a lawyer will hold a different kind of weight in your mind. And I hope it makes your decision to sign NDA agreements clearer when you're going out there to pitch your ideas. For all my entrepreneurs out there, I hope this episode inspires you to protect your intellectual property or IP as we referred to it in the show today before you put it out in the public. And we learned today that you can do that a variety of ways, not just with patents, but also with trademarks. Today's listener spotlight comes from T Mama 15. T Mama says, what an amazing show. I've been seeking help and insight for my product for some time. This podcast has given me a clear next steps for my prototype. Thank you T Mama for that lovely written review and that beautiful rating. If you love this podcast and you haven't already left a review, what are you waiting for? My phone lights up whenever a new review comes in and seeing that this podcast has a positive impact on you as you develop and pitch your toy ideas puts a huge smile on my face. As always, thank you so much for being here with me today. I know there are a ton of podcasts out there and it means the world to me that you tune into this one. Until next week, I'll see you later, toy people. Thanks for listening to Making It in the Toy Industry podcast with Agile Wade. Head over to thetoycoach.com for more information, tips, and advice. Hey, are you an aspiring toy inventor or toy entrepreneur? Then you should check out Toy Creators Academy, the first of its kind online program designed to help you develop and pitch your toy ideas. Head over to toycreatorsacademy.com to learn more.